Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you? everyone, welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. And if you enjoy this podcast, perhaps you'll be kind enough to rate and review it. And why wouldn't you enjoy this podcast? Because joining me now is one of my favorite people to talk about fantasy football with, Dave Cabin of Rotoviz. He is a senior fantasy analyst and Rotoviz co-owner. And now he's co-hosting the new thrice weekly Rotoviz fantasy football show along with Curtis Patrick. Uh, he's just an all-around good guy. Find him on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF. Welcome back, Dave. Hey, thanks, Pat. Appreciate the kind words. You know, we did this around this time last year. We talked, and I honestly, at the risk of sounding obsequious here, have been just waiting to get back for the full year and talk with you. As I've talked about before, I really enjoyed listening to the show. Uh, my buddy, Colm Kelly, is the producer. So, you know, just all, all things uh, that I like on this show. So I'm pumped to be back here chatting with you. Oh, awesome, man. Yeah, I, I think it was not even a full year, Dave. I was in such a rush to get you back on. Oh, I think excellent. the weather was a little warmer the last time I had you on. So, um, yeah, it's good to have you back. And uh, with the draft coming up in, oh, just about two weeks now, depending on when people are listening to this, let's get right into it. Uh, so starting with the class of, of 2021, you wrote an article last month, Dave, about how to, to maximize the chances of selecting an elite running back in a dynasty rookie draft. And you identified a few categories that really seem to matter based on historical production. First of all, what are these significant categories? Sure. So, and I'll just give a quick background on the way that I went about identifying these, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about it, uh, I, I think, later in the episode. But there's something that we've always or that we've done for years at Rotoviz, which is called regression tree analysis. Kevin Cole did a bunch of awesome stuff with this. Anthony Amico uh, did a bunch of cool stuff with this. And while I was working through some of this um, to try to look at the situation that we have this year with it being such this odd, such an odd year with all of the COVID implications, players declaring early. I was trying to look in specifically on the relationships between stats and metrics when you're looking at things on a per game basis and you're trying to predict what a player will do in terms of points per game in his first two or three seasons. And there was a couple of things that kept popping up in all of the regression trees that I was looking at. Um, and in specific thresholds for these particular stats. So a couple of the things that looked to be pretty key in trying to find the players that would be what I might consider to be hits. So players that averaged more than 12 points per game, which in the last maybe five, six seasons has been approximately the RB24 threshold. You see yards per rushing attempt you want your players to be above six. You also want their total yards per game over 100. 
you want their rushing attempts adjusted market share to be 50% or 0.5. And by adjusted, we're looking at the games in which they did play. So when they played, was their rushing attempt share greater than 50%? And finally, as we all know, draft position is so important. We like to see that going uh, before 100. Now, this is not to say that players need to beat every single one of the numbers I just said exactly. There's definitely some movement when you're doing something like regression tree analysis. As you change the training sets, the different sets of data that you're doing the analysis on, um, you'll find that these numbers can kind of change. But Pat, the most interesting finding that came out of this whole study was when I started zoning in on if there was any like real simple type of relationships you could find, I came upon just two factors that you can combine that have a very, very competitive hit rate when you're mining for running backs, which is a position that I find to be very tough to, to work with. But of the 168 players that were included in the database of players I was working with, 16 of them managed 6.0 more yards per attempt while also going for more than 100 total yards per game. Of those 16 players, 12 of them became what I considered NFL hits. So that's a 75% hit rate with a super simple methodology. Uh, of course, though, there's caveats with everything. So a total of 28 players in my data that went from 2005 to 2017 did beat out that 12.0 point per game number. So the heuristic that I'm using here does miss out on some players, but we need to place it in context because 28 uh, running backs were selected um, in round one of rookie drafts between 2014 to 2018, would have gone back further, only a data for that. Only 12 of those players, which is 43%, beat the 12 point per game number. So if you went with this simple methodology of looking for running backs that had more than six yards per carry in their college career, as well as more than 100 yards per game, you might miss out on some players, but your chances of hitting when you do make those selections is much more competitive than you're going to see um, when you compare it with just people using other processes and drafting running backs in round one of rookie drafts. To highlight some of these players, Christian McCaffrey, Ezekiel Elliott, Dalvin Cook, Kareem Hunt, Leonard Fournette, Melvin Gordon, Nick Chubb, Joe Mixon, Ryan Matthews, Jamal Charles, Jeremy Hill, Marlon Mack, Tevin Coleman, Matt Breida, Rashad Penny, Samaje Pirine. So I will pause right there. Uh, I have a couple other things to say, but you, you can interject with any thoughts on that because that's a super impressive list of players. It really is. I mean, you know, there's some Jeremy Hills uh, snuck in there, but for the most part, I mean, that is with the hit rate like that. I mean, we want to get those guys in. So no, I mean, go ahead. I'm curious to hear who hit the benchmarks in this class. Yeah. So in this class, um, we almost have to take a step back because that's such an elite group of players to get into. Right. So we did have two players from this year's class that met it. Um, Jarrett Patterson and Travis Etienne actually did meet that threshold. But the caveat here, I think, is that Travis Etienne feels a lot more like those players on that list. Jarrett Patterson, I have some significant concerns about given the size um, and when we kind of place the conference that he played in in context of those other players. So this does look really good for Etienne, though. Um, then the other thing that people might be wondering is, what if we just combine those players 
um, or, or combine those stats that I had outlined earlier. We're a ways away from the draft, even though it really is approaching. So I said, let's remove draft position. Let's replace it with touchdowns per game, which are important and set the threshold there at 0.98, which looked to be around the range where you'd want to make that cutoff. Um, only four players of the six that hit um, all four of those thresholds going back to 2007. Um, you had Ezekiel Elliott, Dalvin Cook, Leonard Fournette, Steve Slade, and Royce Freeman, and Samaj P. Ryan. So four of those six guys hit. Um, that is not a large sample of players there, but as you go down to three and then to two, you can see that um, you have like uh, there definitely is a relationship between scoring well in those metrics and your points per game. Uh, the 2021 class doesn't include any guys that hit all four of those thresholds. However, ETN and Patterson also. Uh, reached three, and then Chuba Hubbard and Jamar Jefferson each checked three boxes. So that was kind of a, a, an interesting study, uh, an interesting process to go through. Um, like I always caveat with any of these studies, I don't think that you can make that your only input into um, scouting these rookie running back prospects, but it certainly spoke to me just how um, compelling of a profile Travis Etienne in specific has. And then it's also... Uh, you know, a boon for Hubbard and Jamar Jefferson that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Sean Siegel actually just put out an article on him that I think is worth a read because he's also a pretty interesting player in this class. And I know um, that the testing sort of torpedoed Jefferson's, uh, a lot of the enthusiasm that some people had for Jefferson. But uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe that shouldn't be a reason to totally sour on him. I'm kind of interested that it, uh, you know, that there are some signs of life for, for Patterson, Jared Patterson. I mean, uh, I guess the fact that he is a smaller back who doesn't really catch passes has, you know, thrown sort of a wet blanket on uh, the enthusiasm for him, but, you know, uber productive in, in college. And um, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't totally give up on the guy. I mean, maybe he could be sort of a um, Devin Singletary type guy in the NFL. So, um, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Where, where did, uh, the two North Carolina guys come out on this? Did they kind of cannibalize each other with the yardage thing? I mean, I, I'm guessing neither of them hit a hundred yards per game because they had each other there sharing work. Yep. So they did cannibalize, um, each other to some degree, but actually one of the interesting things is that both Javante Williams and Michael Carter actually managed more than six point yards per game on rushing attempts. Um, but they only produced 95 and 92 total yards per game, which is close. But in some of the analysis that I did, the threshold for total yards per game was actually closer to 130. So while they were close and it's encouraging, I couldn't put them into that group. Um, and then in terms of just checking the four boxes, as you mentioned, it was hard for them to get up to that level of three. I believe they were both at two. Now, somebody might be thinking to themselves, well, do we make an exception here because they cannibalized each other? But what I would say is that you do need to think about the fact that if you have a back that should be really excelling at the NFL, unless he's in a backfield where there's two guys that you can tell are absolute studs, um, you probably would prefer that they're not 
allowing another back to eat significantly into their workload. So an exception for me would have been Miles Sanders playing behind Saquon Barkley um, or like a Najee Harris who was sharing the field with other NFL players. But then Harris did have that season where he was able to really assert himself. And we'll talk about him a little bit later on. Um, but, you know, to kind of get to where that discussion would head, I am not as high on Javante Williams as some people are. I think that it really is ETN and Harris, despite some of his shortcomings, and then a pretty big break to Javante Williams. It's part of that, uh, I don't know, testing and, and measurements, the fact that Javante came in kind of light. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him a little bit heavier because it would have allowed him to kind of differentiate himself than some of these other players. Um, and like, I do think that he was the better player than Michael Carter. Um, but if I'm just trying to find the analytics to support and I'm trying to bolster my probability of hitting things correctly. And, and I think that this is a, a fairly weak class. So well, he may make a compelling argument to be the third player in a larger context, looking back the last four or five seasons, I don't think he scores highly enough for me to really be that interested in him. Yeah, that I'll buy that, I guess. Uh, tell me about the the exercise you did with wide receivers in this class and the article you wrote about it, the same sort of regression tree analysis. Yep. Yeah, and then so just to give a little bit more of um, a background, like the other thing that's cool about the regression tree analysis and in the way that you'll have, um, that you'll do some things to kind of, filter through different metrics and coming up with these thresholds too. It, it, at the end of it, you get this visual tree that you can look down and, and I'll kind of quickly walk through what you see for wide receivers. So again, draft positions, very important. So for wide receivers, the tree goes two different ways with a draft position of around 106. Um, and then if your draft position is lower than 30 and your age is 21 or younger, you are predicted to score around 15 points per game. Another thing that you would see in the tree that becomes important is receiving market share, um, receiving touchdowns per game. And that was it actually in the trees that I was looking at. Now, I'm sure you could build some of these in different ways. This was one that I found to work out very well. So what I take away from it, Pat, is that it speaks to youth being preferable, which we've known about. Draft position is so enormously important that when you start looking at different ways you can model things, it actually gets frustrating because you can try so many different things, but the level of impact that you're going to make from a statistical perspective or the predictive ability in your model is so small when doing things with other metrics in comparison to the boost that you get out of draft position that you sometimes you feel like really youth and draft position are all you need to look at. I don't think that's entirely true. Because we also did see that, uh, you know, receiving market share and touchdowns are things to keep in mind. Um, and then another thing that I'll say, too, is that makes it tough when you're doing a regression analysis. You can get overfit to your data. Um, and when you're looking at college players that go to the NFL who you can do this analysis with, you have a fairly small pool. Results are a little bit stronger um, when carrying from set to set with wide receiver than at running back. Um, so that's why I felt pretty good with this, but yeah, like the key things, draft position, final age, receiving market share, receiving touchdown played into some of the numbers that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll present here, but I will pause in case you have anything to add. 
It's just kind of amazing how much more important draft position is for the wide receivers than the running backs. I mean, it's just sort of, um, you know, you you get what you pay for, I guess. Uh, like the, the GMs have sort of got the wide receiver process down to a science. And I think it's just a little easier to, to call the wide receivers than it is the running backs in a lot of cases. So, um Maybe not totally shocking, but it is kind of funny that you can just sort of do it based on, you know, those two simple things, age and and draft position and, you know, come up with a pretty good hit rate. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the things that um, might play into it as well is the fact that a running back still has to find himself in the right situation. Um, And, you know, they have less control over what they're able to achieve if they're playing behind an offensive line that isn't great or a coach that isn't emphasizing the running back position or using that player in a way that makes sense, then it's going to be harder for them to be impactful. Um, so I think that's one of the things that plays into it. But I want to present something here, Pat, that is that is really nuts. So as I said, if a player has a draft position lower than 30 and they're 21 or younger in their final season, the group of players that that, that puts them in with and Jamar Chase is in that group is absolutely insane. So the list of players from the data I was working with here that achieved that, Sammy Watkins, Amari Cooper, Mike Evans, Jeremy Macklin, Brandon Cooks, Percy Harvin, DJ Moore, DeAndre Hopkins, Akeem Nix, Kenny Britt. We already know there's like no case that really has to be made for Jamar Chase as a wide receiver one in this class. But like for me, when I saw this, that really cemented it. Yeah, if if that's the list of comps, like even the, the downside of those guys isn't too bad. So um yeah, were there any guys who who came up with red flags when you were doing this? Guys who just didn't, uh, you know, hit many of these benchmarks at all, and and yet are fairly highly regarded in this this well, class. Yeah, so one player that I think has lost a lot of um, emphasis or a lot of enthusiasm from people is Tutu Atwell. Um, but I just would point out that. In addition to the small stature, when I ran him through this regression tree analysis, the tree that he walked down actually put him in one of the lowest buckets. Um, So I'm sure a lot of people are are off of him now, but that was a name that stood out to me. Now, we have an interesting case with Terrace Marshall Jr. He actually ends up walking down a tree that isn't that strong, that gets him to a predicted point per game in his first three seasons of 6.3. Now, as we talked about, with the UNC running backs, it gets really hard when you look at the LSU receivers because we know that they've had a plethora of NFL talent there that Terrace Marshall was sharing the field with, most notably Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase. So in the case of receivers, uh, you know, like I'm a little bit more inclined to overlook some of these results for them. Um And the reason for that is that um, we expect that multiple receivers are going to be used. Um, And that's fine. Like a high functioning college offense can use a lot of different receivers. We see that a lot. Uh, What we don't see as often is really good running backs at the college level um, that have to share the backfield unless they're in it with other NFL players. which you can make the argument going back to Javante Williams and Michael Carter. They're both going to be NFL players. But I, I think that there's a difference when you look at these positions. So Terrace Marshall did not score well. Um, 
beyond that, there weren't any players that in comparison to where people have them projected in the draft or might be targeting them. There weren't really any other guys that stood out to me as, as big issues. Yeah. Um, turning back to running back for a second, Dave, you have this metric called breakaway rush scores and you just did an article about breakaway rush scores for the class of 2021 and you opened it by making the case that there's this meaningful relationship between breakaway runs runs of 15 or more yards and nfl success which kind of makes sense i guess who in this class had a a breakaway rush score that stood out (laughs) oh pat you know last year i was really into uh vaughn this year my breakaway rush score darling was JV and Hawkins. He absolutely crushed it. Um, led the led all players by a very significant margin. And uh, just for a little more background, so with breakaway rush score and the way that I'm doing it currently, I had to do some things where I normalize for the fact that players didn't all have the same number of games. So I basically used players' average rushing attempts per game and it made the assumption that what would things look like if they all played 48 games and then in blending in a certain way runs over 15 runs over 20 and runs over 40 that combination for whatever seems to line up the best with um predicting nfl fantasy points but jv and hawkins when i put this all together got a breakaway rush score of 122 the next closest player was michael carter at 99 this score for jv and hawkins put him in like a very um very impressive group of other players. Unfortunately, then, Pat, he does his pro day. We see that his athleticism, though he's athletic, might not be enough to make up for his size. So I was disappointed by that. But Jamar Jefferson scored well. Javante Williams also did score well. Travis Etienne um, got an 81, which is still good enough to put him up towards like the top quartile. So that was just another feather in the cap for Travis Etienne. Um, those were the good guys. A couple of players that scored poorly, um, Demetric Felton, but that's not much of a surprise seeing as I think that, you know, you're not anticipating he's going to score his points in the NFL as a pure rusher. So I wasn't that worried about it. Master Teague did not do very well. um, If anybody was interested in that, Ramondre Stevenson didn't do as good as I would have liked. And then Najee Harris only got a 47, which of all the players in the class was the third lowest um that's a problem or i could see how you could you could take that as a problem but i think that harris is a good enough of a receiver that he can still make plays happen that way and we did see him make plays at alabama um maybe he's the type of player that can grind it out get that 10 yards doesn't need to have these breakaway runs and with, with even though breakaway rush score is one of the more predictive metrics that we do have for running back it's pretty much on par with with all of the things i've looked at that are good predictors just because a player scored poorly in this i'm not going to write them off altogether this is something that i'm looking at more when i really get into the finite details on a player for example harris had a teammate early in his career josh jacobs who had a breakaway rush score of just 28, but we've seen him be a productive fantasy back. So I'm inclined to say that Harris might be an exception to the rule. I'm kind of curious, though, what do you think of uh, Harris like in terms of this running back class? You know, I um, I initially had ETN higher. I've since moved uh, Harris ahead of him, but I'm, I'm really like, I think they're neck and neck, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, I think kind of the knocks on 
ETN tend to be scouting things like, oh, he needs a long runway to, to get going and everything. And I'm not sure I totally buy that based on what I've seen. I mean, I just like how good he looks in space. And, you know, he's just the resume is so solid. And honestly, Dave, he would have been my number two running back behind Jonathan Taylor if he had come out last year. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of torn between the two. And, uh, you know, I still haven't totally made up my mind there. Um, what's kind of interesting, like with with Harris not faring well in breakaway runs and, uh, you know, Ramondre Stevenson not doing well either, you might think it's sort of biased against the bigger backs. But a guy who did pretty well in that metric, I noticed, was uh, Stevie Scott from Indiana. And... Um, I want to say, I don't know if he was top 10, but like maybe just out of it. I think he was just on the border. Um, but to your point, though, there though it might seem like it with this class, it's just a little bit different because we have seen guys like um, Nick Chubb do very well, Royce Freeman, who was bigger, Jonathan Taylor do very well. Um, generally, the really elite backs normally do do pretty well in this, and uh, it, it hasn't looked to me like it, it's dependent upon the player's size. Yeah. And I mean, Stevie Scott is an absolute load. So uh, I don't know that he's kind of a guy who uh, could go like late on day three, who I feel like could be just like a super dark horse in this class. But we'll see about that. Uh, I actually haven't looked into him that extensively since since you mentioned him um, after the show finishes. I'm going to give a, a closer look to him, Pat. Well, he catches passes, too, Dave. That's the interesting thing about him, too. He, he's like this, you know, big bulldozer of a back but he also like has pretty good hands so um you know it wouldn't surprise me i, I think so, some of the enthusiasm might have diminished after this past year like he wasn't very good but um you know i re remember watching a lot of him in 2019 and thinking that he had a chance to be an nfl back so we'll see um all right dave to this point you've been sharing some clinical insights on the, the members of this rookie class you know, you put them under the microscope and examine the historical comps. Uh, you've given me the left brain point of view, <laughs> but I want to pick the right side of your brain a little bit. Which guys sure. in this class do you feel most conflicted about? Like maybe oh, you're dealing gosh. with whether it's conflicting data or you maybe personally like some players more or less than the data and the comps suggest you should. Like who are some of the guys you have mixed feelings about? Okay, so... And I would, I'm going to assume, and I'm even going to have trouble like talking this through because I'm going to be conflicted during it. But I think that I've come around to make my final decision here. Um, but Devonta Smith actually, or Devonte Smith was actually pretty conflicting for me. Um, and I will say like when the running back class, like I mentioned earlier, I think there's that big drop. Um, so since I'm not that interested in those players, like though I think that there's points where if I was tearing them, I might have a little bit of trouble. I just haven't been as conflicted as I have with two of the wide receivers who I think a lot of people are. And as you would expect, that is going to be Smith and then Rondale Moore. So why I have come around on Smith relates to the fact that originally I actually was a little bit worried about Smith because it took him a little bit longer to get up and running at Alabama than other players there, such as Jalen Waddell. And I also felt that Smith's production really got boosted this past season after Waddell went down. 
um, after Waddle was out for the for the remainder of the season. So I talked with Curtis about this, and I feel a lot better now. And I, I will say that if anybody's worried about Smith's weight, I don't think that they need to be because we have seen 72 wide receivers play snaps in the NFL going back to 2000. I know that people might say, well, you know, that's a very slim number. We just don't see a lot of elite players under 175. But I think you need to dig a little bit deeper, put more context on it, because the reality is a lot of those players at that size went undrafted, which you could view as a knock. For whatever reason, those players aren't getting sought after in the draft. But the ones that do actually perform pretty decently. So round one players, you have Tavon Austin, Hollywood Brown, Dennis Northcutt. Those guys collectively averaged 9.3 points in their first three seasons. I would say that Smith's more of a pure receiver, less of a gimmick guy, or at least the way that teams wanted to use Tavon Austin. Hollywood Brown, 11 points isn't that bad. And I think if he was in a different situation, not playing for the Ravens with limited opportunity, we might be viewing that as a better comp. And that's the most right. common one that you hear. And I would say, you know, Brown maybe hasn't lived up to being the first wide receiver selected. But I don't think you would look at his career and say it prevents another player of that similar stature from achieving well. And then in round two, you have guys like Jacques Green, Titus Young, Paul Richardson, Deshaun Jackson, Roscoe Parrish. Richardson and Parrish, not the best players in the NFL. They drag the average points per game for this cohort down to around 8.5. But you do see Deshaun Jackson managed 14.1 points per game in his first three seasons. Where I'm going with this, Pat, is that there is some precedent for these players not being complete busts. And I don't know how many people are saying that Smith's going to be a complete bust, but when you actually start to dig into his profile at Alabama, and you keep in mind that every year he was, uh, or, or, okay. So in his sophomore season, 16% target share, 24% as a junior, 36% as a senior you know, that is impressive given the group of players that he was playing with. You had Jerry Judy there, of course. You had Jalen Waddell, Henry Ruggs, uh, you know, and more NFL players. You had Irv Smith at a point with, a, you know, playing tight end. 14 touchdowns for Smith as a junior. Then the ridiculous 23 touchdowns, a career receiving dominator of 0.28, ties with Chase as the best in the class with touchdowns per game at just about one touchdown per game. You know, he absolutely crushed the SEC records, has the ridiculous accolades. So he's also going to have the draft position, which we just talked about as being so important. So the reason I'm now conflicted, Pat, is that now I'm now that I'm on board the uh, the Smith train. I'm actually wondering if I need to remove Jalen Waddle from my number two spot in my wide receiver rankings. And that's what I'm conflicted about now, because I've been holding to the fact that I think NFL teams will be able to use Jalen Waddle in more ways. I was impressed with, though he never, um, like in his first couple of seasons, really became the main focal point of the offense, just how he was used, how involved he was in it. And then I do think that if Waddle had stuck around, maybe he would have been the guy that came away winning the Heisman, the pace that he was on was just super impressive. Um, you know, and the other thing, like I talked about him being precocious, which we look for in his freshman season, he had a game against Louisiana, uh, two receiving touchdowns, 138 yards, just impressive stuff on his career, 118, or excuse me, in his senior, er, in his final season, 118.2 yards per game, average 0.8 touchdowns per game. 
almost six wrecks. I, I just think it's super impressive. Where where are you on these two guys? Yeah, um, I have to agree with you. Devonta Smith is just totally a puzzle. And, um, you know, should we look at these comps and say, wow, the odds are really against him? Or should we look at what he has done and just say, like, the comps don't matter because his production profile is so different than any of these other skinny cats who came into the league that, I mean, this guy has already proven himself to be a unicorn. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of talked about that with Ray Garvin last week, and I think he came down on the side of, of unicorn and, um, you know, he was pretty pro Devonte Smith. So, um, and yeah, Waddle is, I mean, a guy I sort of initially had, actually behind Rashad Bateman and um, Rondale Moore. Uh, I've moved him ahead of Moore after the 5-7 the way, and I guess I just have this fear that he's another Tavon Austin, you know, that he's going to be a gadget guy at that size. Let me, let me drill down on him a little bit with you, Dave, because sure. you already mentioned him. And I yep. mean, I'm a, a Rotoviz subscriber, and the other night I was checking out your dynasty rankings, uh, and that's like collective rankings, that is, the, the composites that include yep. you and Sean and maybe Curtis, too. And Blair, and, yep. Yeah, and Blair Andrews. Holy hell, man, you guys are really into Rondell Moore. I mean, Rotoviz <laughs> has him at wide receiver 25 in the composite dynasty rankings. Not rookie rankings, that's 25th overall. Ahead of dudes like Amari Cooper, Kenny Galladay, Allen Robinson, Juju. Um, that's the third highest dynasty ranking among this year's rookie receiver class behind only Chase, who's wide receiver 17, and uh, Smith, who's wide receiver 19. And I mean, this would seem like an indication that the road of his brain trust thinks Rondell Moore should probably be taken in the first round of all rookie drafts, even Superflex. But, you know, as I just noted, these are composite rankings that factor in the individual rankings of you, Sean, Curtis, Blair. Are you as high on Rondell Moore as those guys are? Well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that we are actually um, those guys that you mentioned and Travis May are currently in the mock drafts that we're doing for the second version of our rookie guide. And uh, let me see. I'm actually going to, I want to report on this live. We are currently at pick eight. Um, all right. Unfortunately, I don't get to tell everybody like to break the news of where he was going to go. Uh, but I will tell you that judging upon the t- super flex tight end premium draft that we're doing, that ranking may be adjusting um, given what I'm seeing there. I will say though, that everybody was really high on, Rondale Moore just because that freshman season that he had was so insane. So I'm sure people are aware, but just in case they are not Rondale Moore at Purdue in a season, that he was 18 and a half years old at the end of 114 wrecks, 1,258 yards, 12 receiving touchdowns, a receiving market share of 0.34, a receiving dominator of 0.37. These are absolutely insane numbers. When I had been talking with Matt Friedman on the Rotoviz podcast uh, a couple of months ago, he was so enthused that like I was really on board. And when I started looking at the regression tree analysis, I could see that if 
more did go in the first round, he might pop into, and he probably would have popped into that group with Jamar Chase. The things that do concern me and why I'm not quite as high on Rondale Moore as that composite score is that, yes, the freshman season was absolutely insane, but we've only seen him play seven games since. And yes, he was pretty strong in a lot of those games. But when you are in a class as strong as this one, where there's a number of guys that I like, like Smith, Chase, Terrace Marshall, Rashad Bateman, you don't need to go after a guy like Rondell Moore, who we don't really have much of a precedent. I tried to do the same analysis with guys 5'7 or, or, or lower, but there's not enough players, especially ones that are going to be drafted around where I hope more goes, that you could really draw any meaningful insights. Um, so me personally... I'm probably going to be moving him when I finalize my rankings, which I'm probably going to be doing tonight for the rookie guide. I'm going to be moving him back substantially. Um, so he's probably going to be coming in for me closer to five or six when all is said and done. But I, I do think that we do feel encouraged about Rondell Moore. And some of it is going to be the landing spot like it is with a lot of receivers. But with him, it's going to be really paramount because you need to find him in a situation where there's a coach that recognizes he has a lot of ability as a receiver. You don't need to use him just as a gadget guy, but you probably want to be using him as a gadget guy, put him in motion, give him some handoffs, just utilize him in a lot of different ways, but recognizing too that the guy can play receiver. You just go and look at those highlights from that freshman season. If you have questions about it, you would not have guessed the guy was 5'7". You would have, you would have been fine going with the fact that he was 5'9", maybe even 5'10", if you did not have any idea of how tall he was and you just watched him play. Right. Yeah. Um, give this guy a creative coach, please. Like, I mean, I, I know Andy Reid already has Tyreek Hill. Give him another diminutive wide receiver and, uh, you know, let's have fun because he does need to be in the right situation. But totally agree that 2018 season was just staggering how good it was. And, um, you know, for that reason, like I, I'm just so fascinated by this guy. Um, what about guys you're just planting flags on that you're pretty convinced about? And, um, you know, not even necessarily the early round guys in rookie drafts, just simply the guys who get your blood pumping at whatever price point. Sure. Um, well, I will say that I've planted my flag on Jalen Waddle, as we know, but a, a later round guy. Um, who I'm hoping starts to creep up for people because I do like this player and I'm hoping that an NFL team realizes the potential that that is there is Amon Ra St. Brown. Um, so in the regression tree analysis that I did, even with uh, at the time that I did it, his draft stock wasn't that great. He still came in a cohort of around 8.3 points per game, which I thought was pretty strong. I think that, um, you know, it's funny. Normally at Rotoviz, we don't go that far into the intangibles, but Curtis was just talking about some of the interviews that he's seen with St. Brown, how focused um, the emotional intelligence that this guy has. He comes from a family that is very focused on finding success athletically. They have done that. Um, but, you know, it's beyond just the narrative. Like when I start looking at the numbers on St. Brown, I can get pretty excited um, so he's one of those guys that I think as a result of the fact that he might not be the most sought after wide receiver might land on a team that is pretty good offensively. His final season was only 21.2. So he's not that old um, receiving market share of more than 20% every season that he was there 
Um, you know, 16 touchdowns in 30 games on the career, pretty solid receiving dominator. He's one of these guys in comparison to other receivers, you might not get super hyped up about the numbers, but you know, seven, one, one has the size a 40 time of four, five, one, not the quickest, um, in comparison to other players, but nonetheless, I think that, um, he's going to surprise people when all is said and done. So I'm actually pretty pumped up about him. Yeah. Um, I know he didn't test quite as well as some people would have liked, but, um, yeah, having coming from, uh, well, I mean, being the brother of Equinemius, who, you know, a little slow to catch on, but started to get involved in the Green Bay offense this past year. It's going to be interesting because I think he, uh, you know, a better prospect and, um, yeah, landing spot is going to be another, you know, key for him, I think, and uh, going to the right place. Um, going off topic for a second, Dave. Uh, so in the tweet you have pinned to the top of your Twitter profile page, you say that you've struggled with depression and anxiety for a long time. And, and you posted a screenshot with a fairly detailed list of, of coping mechanisms. And you posted this last June when we were three months into the pandemic and there were a lot of people feeling stressed. So it seemed like a pretty poignant time for you to share that. Um, when and how did you first realize that depression was an issue for you? Oh, yeah. So this is a, a really um, hard thing to kind of explain because I'm not sure exactly when I realized. But I can say, um, I mean, as early as four, like I was, and it sounds nuts to say, but like dealing with existential dread um, and, and having some of thoughts that about as dark of a, as a person can have. And that was at four. Um, and, and kind of why this relates to, you know, me posting that, that, that stuff on Twitter is because, um, I think it's such a prevalent thing that people struggle with and it's easy for people not to recognize that a lot of other people are struggling with it and that, um, you know, a lot of people might see you as, as holding things together on the outside, but you're just, you know, struggling so much on the inside and, and, you, and you feel hopeless. And when you, when you develop something when you're four and I didn't, it didn't even occur to me until I was maybe like 22, like that the level of anxiety that I always felt and like this prevailing sense of it just at any moment, like the world was going to explode. Um, I didn't really realize till I was 22 that that wasn't normal. And like, I had been so bogged down and just like trying to get through the depression that I didn't even realize the anxiety was there. Um, which is like a pretty crazy crazy thing to realize. Um, but like the good thing is over the years, as you mentioned with the coping mechanisms, I have developed some stuff that works for me. Um, and this was kind of getting to that point because I, I, I like ended up at the point in my life where, um, I needed to learn to deal with it and I needed to learn to address it better. Um, or, you know, bad spiral that I could go down. So the good news is that these things have worked for me and I, I can deal with things much better. Um, you know, I don't think that depression or anxiety are things that ever really go away. You can learn to kind of quiet them down. Things that help for me. Um, the most important thing is I have to keep myself distracted by keeping busy. Uh, if, I let myself, if I let myself go idle, that's when those feelings will surface. I'll go back to that old place that I used to spend a lot of time in and it's a comfortable place. 
um, in an odd kind of ironic way, um, but I have to present myself, prevent myself from going there. So being busy, keeping distracted, finding something. So for me, I am always working on fantasy stuff. Um, and that works for me because I have something that I'm focused on, something I really enjoy doing. It's also something for me that is more of a like analytical type of pursuit. So when I was younger, I was very into music, um, almost kind of went down like a career path with it. Uh, but I realized that and like creative type of things really brought out a lot of depression in me um, and always brought me to a bad place. So though it was something I loved, like I had to recognize that was a trigger for me. And I've learned the importance of avoiding triggers. Um, so that's something that I try to do. So for some people, if you know that social media, I think that's a big problem for a lot of people. If 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 it's giving you issues, like I think you, you, you're you better served to try to avoid it. Or if you know there's things that trigger you, just avoid it. Another thing that's really key, I think, is working on changing the way that you think. So I actually did cognitive behavioral therapy um, with a therapist, which is really focused on changing the way that you think. So I would always think no matter what situation I was in that the absolute worst thing was going to happen. So like if I was at work and I had to go down the hall to somebody's office and ask them for something super simple, like in my mind, it would be like, I'm going to go in there and this person's going to like explode. It's going to be the worst interaction ever. Um, but you'd start taking steps. Like you think about, all right, like every time I've gone down for whatever this task is, has anything bad ever happened? No. And then you start like rehearsing instead of it going so badly, you start rehearsing it going well. And then over time, you try to work down your rehearsal time. So changing the way you're thinking has been a big thing. The other thing is forcing yourself to get changes of scenery, to go outside, not stay in one place in one room. That kind of tends to lead to wallowing. It puts you in that pattern of things that you might do when you are super depressed. Um, so you need to like break that routine and break that pattern. Um, so those are some of the things that have made a pretty big difference for me. Um, and I, I, I think like being mindful of keeping up with those practices can go a pretty long way. Yeah, it's uh, good that you've developed that, obviously. Like you you know, it seems like you've done a pretty good job of self-assessment and, and figuring out like what can dig you out of that hole when you need it. And uh, I'm really glad you posted that. 10 months ago, because as I mentioned to you before the show, I shared your post with someone in my family and it did help. I mean, they, especially the change of scenery one you just mentioned, like that was a, a big one. Um, you know, and I'm sure there were other people with depression or anxiety who, who saw that and benefited from it too. And to anyone listening who's, who's dealing with depression, check out Dave Cabin's Twitter page. That tweet is still pinned there and, you know, maybe it could be of some help to you too. So, all right, Dave, um, turning back to much more frivolous matters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk about startup dynasty drafts. Yes. Tis the season after all. And, uh, my God, dynasty startup drafts are so much fun. Different people approach them in different ways, of course, but it seems like the biggest overarching tactical consideration is what sort of title window you want to aim for. You can take shortcuts and draft those, older but still valuable players who can often be had cheaply in dynasty startups, the veterans. Uh, you can go all in on youth and load up on rookies who, you know, tend to, you know, come at a nice discount and gain value fairly quickly. And you're sort of setting a title window at two or three years down the road, perhaps, or you can sort of split the difference 
paying attention to age, but not necessarily ignoring veterans. Uh, I guess that's kind of the approach I generally take. And the basic philosophy for me is to be a serious title contender by year two. Uh, what about you? What sort of approach do you tend to take in dynasty startups with regard to the age thing? Yeah. So I kind of have more of a balanced approach. It seems like I'm probably in a similar sphere as you. Um, and, and a lot of my philosophy on this kind of comes from something that Sean Siegel has always said, which is kind of, it's not, it doesn't have to be one, one or the other. It doesn't have to be like you start your dynasty off trying to win year one by just grabbing all of these veterans. And it doesn't have to be that you have to build for the future by grabbing all of these young players. There can be a happy medium where you're getting guys that are youthful, but also building your team in a way with them that you're competing right off of the bat. Um, and, and I think that a lot of the ways in which you do that is by being aware of the trends, really focusing on the different pockets that you see in ADP at different positions and, and thinking to yourself like, okay, there might be some really good, rather young wide receivers that I can start this draft off with. I know there's going to be pockets later on where there's some running backs that are not going to be highly drafted, but have some youth. I can then pivot towards them when the time's appropriate. And, and you kind of develop a plan that way. Uh, so like I'm currently in a startup draft, uh, actually with Curtis Patrick, we just rolled out a partnership with the FFPC where we have what's called Rotoviz Triflex dynasty leagues and we were in the first we're, we're currently doing it it's the first draft of this format that there has been which is cool because you get to see the different way people can structure their teams and how they're going to do it and this is a league where you have one additional flex spot which is new there's no kickers no dsts um and there is the super flex piece for the quarterback so this was kind of a, a different endeavor i was able to start with a group of receivers in justin jefferson Stefan Diggs, DeAndre Hopkins, and Terry McLaurin. And I think that that's an example of how you could start off in a startup with a group of players that arguably uh, could really propel me towards winning this season and then is also really well positioned as we move along. Um, and to kind of go back to what Sean will talk about, it's you can kind of win every year by continually making moves where you're kind of turning your roster incrementally. Um, so that's why I like to start more, well, going youthful, but I, I'm not making it like my primary concern, if that makes sense. Jefferson, Diggs. Uh, Hopkins and McLaurin. Hopkins and McLaurin. My God. So that kind of answers uh, to some extent the question <laughs> I was going to ask next, because I was going to ask what about the positional leaning uh, and you know how it seems that Rotoviz has just generally takes the wide receiver first approach in most things, not just dynasty, uh, you know, but there are people like Matt Kelly of player profiler who stresses the importance of getting the running back position right in dynasty startups. Um, you know, this, this kind of suggests where you are on this. I mean, did you, was this just a, a seize the moment thing or do you generally play the wide receivers pretty heavily in, in dynasty startups? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. And this league, with the way it's structured, I think that there was an advantage for going um, with wide receiver because of that extra um, flex spot, as I mentioned. Uh, but in a more conventional type of, of league, I'm not opposed to going um, with the 
focus being on running back early. Uh, but the reason that I, I tend to prefer going wide receiver, and I've, have te- I've had teams that in both approaches have done well, and I've had teams in both approaches that haven't gotten off to the start I would have liked. But I think that this, the struggle that you can have when you start off with the running back approach is generally there's this small concentrated group of mega running backs that can make an absolutely huge difference for your team. But it's tough to start off getting two of those guys. You know, you have to do a lot of maneuvering to get there. And then you need to hope that those guys do remain these mega guys that you thought they were. I find it, it's a little bit easier with this strong group of wide receivers. And granted, you're not going to have a top level wide receiver that's going to make the impact that a Christian McCaffrey or an Alvin Kamara might. But you have more options with those wide receivers to set up a strong core in your team and then take forward. And lots of times, you know, better shelf life for those guys. People are seeking after them less. So if you're kind of trading around and making picks, you don't need to get yourself into the top rounds to get multiple of those players. Uh, I also like the fact that they hold their equity for longer. So when I start off my team with a guy like Hopkins, I might be able to sell him at the end of this year or next year and still get a decent return on that, helping to kind of, you know, turn make that incremental improvement and keep my team kind of young. Um, so, you know, that's just my preference. Um, I will lean towards wide receiver, but in comparison to redraft, I do prioritize running back more in dynasty. Uh, and I can imagine some leagues and some draft positions that I might have where I would be more inclined to kind of beef up on running back. But in general, I lean towards wide receiver. Yeah, same. Shelf life is such a big thing. I mean, like, DeAndre Hopkins, I would expect DeAndre Hopkins is still going to have significant value four years from now. And, you know, whereas guys like look at Todd Gurley, I mean, what's Todd Gurley's dynasty worth right now? Le'Veon Bell, you know, I mean, at at the time, like, obviously they were major producers for, uh, you know, a short and glorious window, but man, when it goes, it goes fast and, you know, it's going to be a much gentler slope on the aging curve for, the receivers in most cases. Um, all right, Dave, I've, I've posed this question to my last few guests and I'll pose <laughs> it to you too. I have to ask, who do you think that the 49ers are taking at number three and who should they take? All right. So I'm going to be honest. Like I do not follow um, the draft and the landing spots nearly as closely as some of the people that I talk a lot with in the industry until um, we actually know them. Um, So I'm going to default to just going off of what I've read from Matt Friedman um, because he follows it really closely and he follows a lot of people that he believes to be very sharp on this. And and he is saying that the consensus of people that he thinks are really sharp at it believe that it's going to be Mac Jones. So my my prediction, I'm going to follow Friedman and I'm going to say that it's going to be Mac Jones. I personally think that it should be Justin Fields. And the reason that I think it should be Justin Fields is he's a very competitive passer. Um, He's accurate, 68.4 completion percent on his career, not the most accurate passer in the class, but accurate. We know he's a terrific runner, and he's actually pretty darn accurate on the run, which is something that should become important for him at the next level. I mean, the guy threw 41 touchdown passes um, in 2019 to just three interceptions, able to control the ball, Um, you know, in some of the metrics that I look at for quarterbacks, I look at their total yards per game, uh, Justin Fields, 68th percentile doesn't jump off the page, but that's strong 94th percentile in total touchdowns per game. And in this year's class tied with Trey Lance, only Trevor Lawrence 
did better. His max AYA is the 96th percentile. Um, if you average up the key things I look at, he lands in the 86th percentile. So the passing really is there. And then the differentiation that you get from a player like Justin Fields, who ran for 10 rushing touchdowns in 2019 in 14 games, five rushing touchdowns in eight games in 2020, and can accrue you know more than four yards of carry. We've seen how that is translating in today's NFL. I think that that gives him an upside and a uniqueness that you're not going to find elsewhere. He's you know really well built, might be just about as good athletically as any other quarterback's going to be in the game. So I think that any team should be going for fields if Lawrence isn't available uh, just because the upside is so great and you can make a case for him being just as good of a passer as any of the other options in the class. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I do think, you know, when Adam Schefter is saying that he would be shocked if it wasn't Mac Jones, it's hard to believe it wouldn't be Mac Jones, but I do think it should be Fields or maybe Trey Lance, you know, who I think has the, a similar upside yep. to Fields, but, you know, maybe doing a bit more wish casting than you would have to do with Justin Fields. Uh, Dave, when I had you on the show last summer, we talked about Jarvis Landry as a potential value, <laughs> and uh, maybe that didn't work out so well. But you did recently note on Twitter that Landry had the second fewest points per game of his career last year, finished out of wide receiver three range for the first time. His current ADP in FFPC best ball drafts is wide receiver 44. Do you think that's too low? Uh, all right. You know, the, the, the funny thing is, any podcast that I ever go on, I end up talking about Jarvis Landry. And that's because for the last, it, honestly, it feels like since I was like a kid, I've been talking about how Jarvis Landry is a better receiver than people think that he is and how he actually might be better than OBJ. I've argued with Friedman about that a, a ton. And I've always thought that he was this great value. Unfortunately, we have reached the point where I cannot be Jarvis Landry's biggest advocate. Uh, well, I do think 44 is too low. I am going to point out that He's just not the screaming value he was anymore. And there's no better way to put it in perspective than last year, he was a wide receiver just one time, finished as a wide receiver two in just 20% of weeks, and was a wide receiver three or worse in 73% of weeks. He had the lowest targets per game of his career last year, um, played in 15 games, put up his lowest air yards of his career. It was also the first year he missed a game, which I could overlook. But when you're adjusting for per game numbers, you know, nothing that you can really point to as saying, um, you know, this is a reason why I think that we need to be buying in to Jarvis Landry. There could be some improvement there, but I think if that offense does improve and the receivers improve, maybe you see a little bit of appreciation for um, OBJ as well. You know, I, I think that you have Kareem Hunt there to play in the receiving game. You have Hooper. You'll have David Njoku, Rashard Higgins. Uh, this just isn't a, a situation anymore where Landry's just going to soak up a million targets. Um, you know, as I said, lowest um, per game average of his career last year only got to 101 targets. So I think he's probably better than than wide receiver 44. But I think you can make an argument that players in that range or behind him at this point in their careers might have more upside than Landry and some of that reliable production that you might have enjoyed from a guy like Landry um, in years past is, is no longer there. 
Yeah, think about lowest air yards per game in his career. Uh, when you consider that his first couple of years in Miami, like a seven-yard route for him was going deep. Uh, but he was also getting 150 targets a season there. Yes. So it was kind of a different story. Um, all right, David, let's go rapid fire on these. You and Curtis <laughs> had a really interesting conversation yeah. about uh, best ball late round values. And I just want to zip through some of these guys with you. Uh, Brashard Perryman, currently the wide receiver one, I guess, for the Detroit Lions, uh, going in the 25th round of FFPC drafts. Too low? Oh, my gosh. You know, this is one of those cases where you start talking about P- Brashad Perriman, people don't get excited. At, at, at that late in the draft, you probably should. Uh, 216 vacated targets from the Lions last year. Between him and Williams, it's very easy. They get to 80 targets. Heck, they could get to 100. Um, it's a weak stat, but the point here will hold. In the last three seasons for Perriman, he's produced one wide receiver one week one time in all of those seasons. If he does that one time, he's going to be in your lineup and that justifies the ADP. How often at that late in the draft can you have a player who has a a very realistic path to 100 targets? It just very, almost never happens. So I I really like Perriman there. He's a target for me. I'm trying to get him at this point on 15 to 20% of my teams. I'm with you. Between him and Williams. I've been a closet Perryman fan for a long time. And, uh, you know, I haven't forgotten that he went berserk in December of 2019. Granted, it was with, (laughs) you know, Jameis Winston fueled. Everything was sort of hypercharged in the Bucks passing game that year. But, um, you know, and, and granted, like, I think Evans was out for part of that and, uh, Godwin was out for part of that, but, you know, Hopkins still kind of showed that he could be a prolific receiver if the need were to arise. And it's pretty much it's pretty much going to be that sort of situation in Detroit unless they wind up going out and getting Jamar Chase, uh, a distinct possibility. But, you know, there's definitely opportunity there for Perryman. Uh, Darrington Evans of the Titans didn't really register as a rookie and he's playing behind Derrick Henry, but do you think he's a good bet for 2021? Uh, well, at least as a late round dart. I have no problem with Evans uh, um, as a late round target um, just because there's really nobody that's going to take over a role if Derrick Henry does, does go down. And even if the Titans just want to, you know, give him some moderate work here and there, uh, we've seen how successful Henry has been able to be in the context of that offense. It's a team that's going to want to run the ball a fair amount. So if they turn it his way, I don't see any reason that uh, he couldn't be productive. And I think there is a level of upside there. Um, so he might be a target for me at that point. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say that he's going too low or too late um, just because, you know, he is playing behind a back that you, you, you should expect is going to be super reliable. And, um, you know, uh, it's not a one for one replacement or anything like that, you know, but if you got 65% production, like 60, if you could approximate 65% of what Derrick Henry can do with Darrington Evans in spots, you know, that that's not anything to scoff at. All right. A guy who I have uh, said is like the most consistently overrated player of the last five years, but suddenly he's going 210th overall (laughs) in FFPC. So maybe not this year, Jamison Crowder, good value at that point. Okay. Um, ah, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes, just so I can talk positively about Jamison Crowder. Um, last year 
He got absolutely peppered with targets at points. I understand that the team has Corey Davis now that Denzel Mims will likely be more involved, hopefully playing a full season. But I do think that with a younger quarterback coming in, in the way that the Jets, I anticipate, will use Jamison Crowder, you're still going to expect a high target volume for him. And they're going to be the type of targets that are reliable enough that he doesn't do anything super exciting, but still manages to accrue a decent amount of value. Uh, just go back and look at what Crowder did last year. And I think you might be surprised. So Crowder is a guy for me, that's probably going to get into that 10 to 15% range on my best Paul portfolio. Um, so just, just don't overlook him. And it's not like, like Corey Davis was good last year, but it's not like he's so good that it entirely uh, changes everything that team does. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not like Corey Davis is some uh, guy who's going to steal all the oxygen in that passing game. So I agree with you on that. Uh, Manny Sanders, he's going to be 35, <laughs> but he's also going 240th overall. Yeah, and, you know, does he need to do that much? You know, Sanders hasn't been the type of player um, the last couple of years where you're saying, like, just pound him with the volume, pound him with the volume. You know, like, I think that... He can go in, maybe do some of the things that John Brown did at that valuation. He doesn't need to be a key player for you every week. It's very likely that playing with Josh Allen, they connect on a couple of deep passes here and there. Um, and you have a couple of weeks where he's in your lineup and justifies you selecting him on your team. Curtis did a much better job of explaining it. I wish I could remember some of the things he lined out. But it made complete sense, and I will go with the dynasty commander and say that uh, you know Emmanuel Sanders at that spot is terrific. Yeah, very productive receiver who's aged gracefully and now gets to play with a top quarterback. It does seem like 240th overall is is a bit of a, a low ball for him. All right, Dave, last question. And you you raised the specter of Keyshawn Vaughn earlier <laughs> in the show. Uh, when you were on last summer, we talked at length about Vaughn. Uh, who was about to enter what turned out to be a very fruitless rookie year. Yep. Uh, now the Bucks have just signed Giovanni Bernard, which really makes for a crowded backfield with Gio joining Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones. And our guy Keyshawn is still there. Depending on where the ADP shake out, do you think you're going to steer clear of this backfield entirely? Or might there be... I don't know, a buying opportunity here if everyone resolves to steer clear of this backfield. And of oh, course, I, oh I also have to ask if there's any hope at all whatsoever left for Keyshawn Vaughn. Yeah, well, I mean, when I came on last year, I had talked about how I'd been so high on Keyshawn Vaughn, as I mentioned, finished highest and was really strong in the breakaway rush score, looked at the overall profile, liked a lot of stuff. And then I was crushed when he went to the Bucks because it wasn't or actually what happened was people thought it was such a good landing spot that his ADP went to the point where I had to step off and say, this doesn't make sense. Well, now I am really crushed uh, in Vaughn's career. I think that you're going to have another year where he's not able to do anything. Uh, two years of very little production, basically for a guy with his draft um, capital, it, it, it really writes him off super uphill battle. Now the rest of the players in there, I'd like to say, you know, I could go with the cliche of just take whichever player is the cheapest. It's probably going to be Vaughn, um, which I don't love. The rest of these guys, maybe maybe you hope that this team sticks with Leonard Fournette. And they they like if the, the momentum that he had and the contributor that he was towards the end of the season, maybe you hope that they make that a priority. 
Ah, I don't know if I trust that. So overall, I probably will be playing it like this. I will be steering clear of drafting any of them, but maybe week two, week three, when hopefully Geo hits the waiver wire or one of the one of the guys in that monster of a mess back there hits the waiver wire, I add them and you know hope I catch you know some some usefulness out of them. I think that's the way to play it. Just grabbing them when they're on the waiver wire versus making a priority to just get one of them in your draft. Yeah, doing that seems like a, a beat your head against a wall kind of approach, and I I kind of agree that that is to be avoided. Uh, Dave Cabin, thank you so much for coming back on again, my friend. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Oh yeah, no, this was awesome, Pat. I'm already looking forward to uh, the next time we get to chat. We didn't talk about Scotland this time like we did last time, but I have more Scotland questions for you that we'll talk next time we catch up. Oh, outstanding. We can definitely <laughs> talk Scotland anytime. Uh, Dave, before you run, could you remind everyone where they could find you and your work? Yep, sure. So on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF, and then uh, go to Rotoviz. You can find my articles. Um, I work on a lot of the tools there with uh, Blair Andrews and Anthony Shook, who's doing a lot of great stuff behind the scenes. Mike Beers over the year set up a bunch of cool tools. Uh, we also have the rookie guide um, that we do. Um, volume two is coming out soon. Uh, so a lot of cool things going on for us at the site. So uh, go visit Rotoviz and check out my work and you know everything that our wonderful team is doing as well. Yeah, things are always happening at Rotoviz, the premier think tank in fantasy football. Thanks again, Dave. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. And that, my friends, is going to do it for the show. My thanks once again to this week's guest, Dave Cabin of Rotoviz. Find him on Twitter at DaveCabinFF. And be sure to check out the outstanding new Rotoviz fantasy football show, which Dave co hosts along with Curtis Patrick. The producer of Fits on Fantasy is Calm Kelly, the finest producer of fantasy football podcasts in all of Ireland. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Fits on Fantasy is brought to you in association with thefootballgirl.com, owned and operated by my pal Melissa Jacobs. Find her on Twitter at thefootballgirl. My thanks to the legendary Milwaukee Ska Band International Chat Set for the intro and outro music. And last but not least, my thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. Please come back again next week when I will be joined by another outstanding guest. So long, everyone. Get on Team Shack with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700.